Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Hi! <laughs> oh no, 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 no. <laughs> Paul, I, I felt like coming in hot because I know it, it's off putting to this you. <laughs> yeah, that was very distasteful. I didn't like that. Well, you know what, Paul? I'm just so excited. We had a fantastic conversation about bariatric surgery, the pre op workup, and counseling, and the post op complications, and post op medications, and supplements, everything, Paul. Mm. With And a little bit about iron. And a little bit about iron for Stuart. <laughs> Mm. And our guest was the great Dr. Vivian Sanchez. Before we get to her bio, Paul, would you tell the audience, what is it that we generally do on this ep- on this show? Not this episode. This show and this episode. <laughs> Both. Generally, um, so we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. And generally, we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Specifically, our expert interview is with the amazing Dr. Sanchez, Dr. Vivian Sanchez, Dr. Sanchez is an assistant professor of surgery at the Boston University School of Medicine, where she also serves as the assistant dean for student affairs. She is the former director of bariatric surgery and a staff surgeon at VA Boston Healthcare System. She started the bariatrics program at the VA in 2009 and is the program director for BMC anesthesia interns in surgery at the Boston VA. She's the former program site director for BMC and BWH surgical residents. Dr. Sanchez received her BA from Harvard and her medical degree from the University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine. She completed her residency in general surgery at MassGen, followed by a research fellowship in surgical oncology at the National Institutes of Health and clinical fellowships in laparoscopic surgery at the University of Miami, Jackson Memorial Hospital, and bariatric surgery at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. So as you can see, she is well qualified to talk to us about tonight's episode, um, selection for and management of the bariatric surgery patients. So without further ado, let's get to it. Do you know why general surgery is so prestigious? I think my favorite part was watching Matt's face as he was waiting for you to actually chime in there. There's just this <laughs> moment of sort of, I would describe it almost as sickly anticipation if I had to choose the words for it. Um, sorry, what was your question, Stuart? I don't know. It doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> no, it really, I'm no, done. I, I generally want to hear this one. Uh, I, I said, do you know why general surgery is always so prestigious? Tell us. Oh, because they're all generals. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, worth it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Vivian, so the first question that we're going to ask you, you knew this was coming. Can you give the audience a one-liner and and then tell them a hobby or interest, something hopefully outside the world of medicine? Well, first of all, thank you all for having me. I'm. It's really an honor. Uh, A little bit about myself. If I were to kind of succinctly describe it, I would say that I'm a bariatric and a general surgeon a medical educator and a dean. I'm absolutely passionate about helping students and residents grow into their path in medicine. And then on a personal note, I'm the mother of a nine-year-old and a wife. And I also have a dog named Fernando. I don't know why, Paul. I could just listen to pet names all day. (laughs) (laughs) That Maybe that's our next spinoff show is just pet names. We just talk about pet names. Yeah, there'll be a lot of traction. (laughs) Well, the funny thing is that his name is Fernando Sanchez. And that, people are like, what? <laughs> Paul? 
Sure. I'm, I'm going to actually, I, I'm happy to hear a book recommendation, but actually before we got started, I, I asked about the shirt that is framed in the background of Vivian's Zoom camera. And actually, do you mind telling us about that? Because I just, I found that fascinating. Sure. That is my grandfather's doctor's robe um, from the 1950s in Cuba. And uh, he was a medical surgeon there. And uh, it's really cool because you can't see it from here, but you could see uh, pen marks in the pocket and then uh, little burn marks on the on the linen cloth from when he smoked. And the <laughs> <laughs> well, you're going back. It's in the 50s. So but that is like my prized possession. And my husband framed it for me. That's really cool. That it's is my favorite, like rate my room decoration that I've seen so far. <laughs> it's spectacular. It's a very, it's a very short surgeon's coat compared to the the dusters that we wear around these days. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, but you know, where I I trained at Mass General, and the residents would wear, and the attendings would wear short coats. The adage is that it's as a way of humbling yourself to the patients. But yeah. I, 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 I immediately weeded out all those places for my match. I didn't want to wear, I was done with the short coats after medical school. <laughs> it just gets longer as you get farther along, right? It does. Um, so what would you say your favorite failure is in your journey to become a bariatric surgeon? And what did you learn from it? Oh, Stuart, I have so many failures. I don't know where to start, but I would say that my first failure as a surgeon or as a doctor overall was um, really my taking my first job position. I think that as a young faculty member taking your first job, you really need to find a mentored position where there's uh, support from the faculty and uh, physicians around you to help support you as you're evolving uh, into a real attending. So I would say that that's probably my earliest and greatest failure, but quickly I've, I've recovered from that and I've gained lots of other failures. Uh, and I think. <laughs> did you, other... did you take a position just to expand on it a little bit more? Did you take a position where you were flying solo and you felt like you didn't have the support you needed or people that you could bounce cases off of? Yes. Oh, that Absolutely. sounds terrifying. Yes, yeah. to all of them. <laughs> but so I learned a lot from that. And as a result, I really try to teach the residents that when they're trying to find their first jobs. But something that I've also learned is that um, trying to be a pleaser and uh, trying to take on too much uh, is another one of my greatest failures, because I find that if you take on too much, you really end up doing nothing well and you scatter yourself into too many directions. So I am still trying to work on that and I'm getting a little better, but long way to go. I love this. I, I think I'm still, I'm, I'm trying to think of these things as almost as systems failures too. There should be some mentorship into whatever role that you're kind of coming into rather, so rather than frame it as like you failed to find a role that had a mentor, probably whatever place that you started with, not to be killed, what I'm sure is a fantastic place, probably should have um, provided a framework that you could have thrived. Um, and I, any place I think should actually provide that. So anyway, that's, that's a great answer. Yeah. And to all the people that are looking for jobs or going to be looking for jobs this year, doctor, well, we talked to Dr. Poorman about like physician depression. She was talking about the loneliness of the first job, the camaraderie of being at arms with like your fellow residents. And then you go to a job where you're working by yourself and eating sad desk lunches. And it, it's, it, it can be, <laughs> yes. So it can be hard, especially if you're operating on people and feeling like you need to talk to people about it. So 
uh, yeah, people, make sure you're going to have enough support around you when you get your first job. Absolutely. Matt, I don't think a lot of our listeners know this about us, but we actually, both of us have geriatric origin stories to some extent. That sounds weird. <laughs> but I, 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 I worked in nursing homes uh, for, I think, like literally a decade before I actually decided to become a physician. And I think, if memory serves, you were actually very seriously considering going into a geriatrics fellowship. Pretty much my entire medical career, if you read my personal statement for medical school, residency, and then when I finally finished residency, finished my time in the Air Force, I was I was ready to go into a geriatrics fellowship, but I ended up doing this podcast instead. So this is like my digital scholarship fellowship, Paul. It's, but So we both failed to fulfill our destiny. So what can we do to help ourselves now? Yeah. I mean, fortunately for us and for the audience... If we ever feel like learning about geriatrics and palliative care, there is GeriPal. It is a geriatrics and palliative care podcast for every healthcare professional, and it is hosted by a past guest of our podcast on our, one of our fantastic GeriSiders episodes, Dr. Eric Wadera, him and his good friend, Dr. Alex Smith. They're both clinicians and professors of geriatrics and palliative care at UCSF. And they get together with some of the brightest people in geriatrics and palliative care to talk about all sorts of topics, end-of-life care, hospice, having difficult conversations, dementia. They had a recently great episode on dementia. Just last week, they had an episode come out on frailty, which is queued up in my podcast player. It is a great learning resource. And uh, Paul, we can't cover all these topics on this show, but fortunately, these guys, these guys do a great job at it. No, I, I'm deeply glad for the help just because it's such an important part of primary care, which, you know, lives um, deep in both of our hearts. So if this sounds appealing to you, and it should, you should listen and subscribe to Jerry Pal in your favorite podcast listening app. Just search for Jerry Pal. That's G-E-R-I-P-A-L, all one word. Again, that's G-E-R-I-P-A-L, all one word. And episode transcriptions and links to the resources they discuss are available at jerrypal.org. <laughs> Paul, I think I think we this is a big topic, so we probably should move on to cases. We can we can uh, skip over picks of the week tonight. Yeah, I think that's right. So we'll we'll transition to the case. Um, the patient's name that I'm not proud of <laughs> is Ms. Rue N Y. She's a 31 year old female. She has a past history of type two diabetes, with her last hemoglobin A1C being 8.1 percent. She has hypothyroidism and is on levothyroxine. She's OSA on CPAP and obesity. Height, 69 inches, weight 245 pounds, which calculates a BMI of 36.2. She's coming to your office, your office um, being our office for primary care and routine follow-up. She endorses adherence with her medication. She's taking metformin ER. She's on the riglotide and also taking her levothyroxine. Ms. Y shares with us that she is frustrated with her inability to lose weight. She has tried tracking her calories with a nap on her phone. She eats six small meals a day. She is as physically active as she can be, and she tries to exercise three times per week, but she's limited by knee pain and dyspnea. And of course, time, you know, she tells you that, of course, exercise, I walk all over the place where I, when I work. She's had periods of weight loss over the several weeks, but then usually will plateau and then gain the weight back. She says that her struggles with her weight have left her feeling somewhat depressed and hopeless. As her primary care doctor, well, just put this on me, I make some vague suggestions about portion sizes and limiting sweets. Um, and then she, she asked me my thoughts on bariatric surgery. And so we like to start, as we always do, uh, with the basics. So I, I think before we go deep into the case of Ms. Y, if you could just talk to us about the indications for bariatric surgery in patients who are living with obesity, and maybe we can sort of take it from there. Excellent. So, so really the fundamentals of how you find and, and guide a patient who may be interested in bariatric surgery is based on the BMI criteria. 
And originally, they, this started in 1991 by the NIH consensus panel that essentially created BMIs over 40 without comorbidities were candidates for bariatric surgery. And BMIs over 35 with major comorbidities were also candidates for bariatric surgery. And it's interesting because everything has really progressed. I, if you stop and think about it, in 2013, I mean, which is not that long ago, is when obesity was finally recognized as a disease by the AMA. And then in 2016, the second diabetes surgery summit came up with some different practice guidelines that included patients with BMIs between 30 and 35, that those patients should be considered if their diabetes was poorly controlled despite medication. So our guidelines are based on very old numbers from 1991 that have not really been adjusted. But gradually, different societies are adding things such as different BMI criteria that help guide us further. And in fact, even now, some say that in Asian populations, um, you should consider bariatric surgery at a lower BMI rate, so uh, 2.5 points below, um, because they get the same comorbidities at a lower BMI point. How long should these patients be enrolled in like a nutritionist class or a um, lifestyle modification class before we even consider bariatric surgery at that? Well, that's a great question. And to be honest with you, a lot of that is mandated by insurance companies. Um, they will mandate up to six months of pre-bariatric surgery, weight loss management with education, nutrition, and behavioral health. And so it's always important, I think, that the more education patients get, the better they're going to do overall. So I don't, in some ways, it could, this pre-education can serve as a barrier to proceeding with weight loss surgery. However, it's also, a, you could educate patients as well. You could teach them about the importance of nutrition. So I, I don't view it as necessarily wasted. If, if we were going to counsel somebody, so this, this woman was on liraglutide, but is, is really, and sounds like she's really trying to do the right things, but despite that not succeeding, how do you tell pe counsel people about what sort of percentage weight loss they can achieve with these surgeries? Well, A, I would tell her that she's not alone. She's a very typical patient that yo-yos, that tries, and then uh, gets back to the same weight, if not above and beyond, mm -hmm. um, for reasons we don't even really understand. So I would tell her that the success, long-term success of medical weight loss is just very poor. It's well under 10%. So weight loss surgery is the only way that we have to assure patients that are obese for sustained long-term weight loss. Um, and the type of weight loss varies from procedure. But if you look at it in terms of excess weight loss for the two procedures that we do now, which is the lap sleeve gastrectomy, the number one um, operation performed in the United States currently, followed by the Rouen-Y gastric bypass, excess weight loss can vary between 60 and 70%. And the way I explain excess weight loss to patients is that let's pretend that you're 100 pounds overweight, which most patients are you can expect to lose between 60 and 70 of those pounds that you're over your weight. Yeah, that's, that's pretty incredible. <laughs> yeah, that's a remarkable number. Yeah, and Absolutely. And think about it. Pretend that you're carrying around a backpack filled with 100 pounds worth of rocks. 
these patients um, very quickly can get rid of 60 to 70 pounds of those rocks um, and they feel so much better. Right. And plus, do you, do you discuss if you're seeing a patient and they're asking you, okay, so there's, there's those benefits. Do you also talk to them about the metabolic benefits that they're going to get um, in that, like when you're talking to them in that initial, you know, risk benefit discussion when they get referred to bariatric surgery? We do. So you kind of have to tackle this from almost like a multi-pronged approach. You have to talk to them about quality of life, that the quality of life will most likely improve significantly after these bariatric operations. Number two, that we expect that their mortality will also decrease considerably after bariatric surgery. We know that from long-term studies. And then we start going into the different comorbidities, which they have, and what we expect of them. I actually, I wanted to, to ask about that specifically, just so we can be concrete about things. When you mentioned, I think it's a BMI over 35 and the comorbidity, can you talk about when we're talking about comorbidities, which ones are sort of the, the most meaningful or significant ones that will either qualify by insurance or are the really hard indications from a, just even a medical standpoint to refer for surgery? So Paul, um, I practice at the VA. So from an insurance standpoint, I'm not going to be able to really answer you specifically <laughs> right now. Sure. Um, but I can tell you that the literature is all over the place with the type of comorbidity improvement, um, which ones qualify and which ones don't. But I would say the typical ones are diabetes, OSA, hypertension, um, reflux, heart disease. Um, Does fatty liver, is that a common one? Yes, that, that is. Thank you for reminding me. Absolutely. So, and maybe we're jumping the gun a little bit here, but- when I, I was surprised when I was reading about these, because you mentioned sleeve gastrectomy and you mentioned ruin Y gastric bypass, and you, you think of some of these surgeries as like more restrictive and some of them malabsorptive. But I was reading and I was surprised to read that even the restrictive surgeries seem to have some immediate like metabolic changes. Do you talk like? Can you speak to that a little bit? Like what 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 do we think is actually happening in these surgeries? And maybe that's too broad of a question, but. No, it's not actually. So that's kind of what I find very fascinating about what I do is that fundamentally we have no real understanding of <laughs> how this operate these operations work. We think that it's moderated by well first we used to call them restrictive or malabsorptive and now we've gone from that to metabolic surgery because we understand that there's so many other factors involved in losing weight. I can also tell you just seeing all these patients is that patients are just not hungry. So you take these patients that you operate on, they're not hungry, their basal metabolic rate is higher, then you have all of these hormone-mediated changes that include hormones such as GLP-1, PYY, ghrelin, um, then the whole bile acid uh, hypothesis, the microbiome, um, and we again, we don't understand how they all play out together, but they they result in very rapid weight loss. Yeah, and some of the metabolic changes, my understanding is, they happen even before they've lost significant amounts of weight. Absolutely, thank you for reminding me. So, for example, in diabetes, oftentimes patients will come in on multiple agents, and before they're out the door, without even having lost more than one or two pounds, their whole metabolic profile is, is altered. They will often go home with no uh, diabetic medications. 
So mm. it's a complete and utter turnaround in their diabetic profile. I think even just sort of reading about this too, like it, it, I mean, especially the literature in terms of the effects on diabetes, kind of miraculous. And yet it seems like, at, le at least in my own practice, probably underutilized as a modality, underoffered as a modality. It's just not something that we talk about probably as much as we should. I, I wonder if you could speak broadly as to how well we do in terms of referring appropriate patients, maybe what barriers exist to, to doing a good job of that. That's a wonderful question. Uh, so what I found is that under 1% of patients who are morbidly obese actually end up undergoing bariatric surgery. And some of the barriers that I think you kind of have to divide it into patient-based and then practitioner-based. And some patients really think that the mortality rate associated with bariatric operations is so big that they don't think that they would qualify or they're afraid to proceed. When in reality, the mortality rate currently in centers of excellence is well under 1%. It's 0.06%, which is under some of the other GI procedures that I perform. So patients don't necessarily know that. So that's something that I wish that primary care physicians would know because perhaps they would refer their patients sooner before the diabetes goes on for 20 years or before they get to this really high weight. Sometimes patients think that the process is too long or too intricate. They've read about all of the tests that they have to do, all the blood work, and that at the end, they'll be denied anyways. They often, as we've alluded to earlier, they will be mandated to have this pre-op weight loss program that is usually about six months. They often think that perhaps the post-op lifestyle changes are too much and that they may not be able to adhere to these changes, not realizing that after about three months, most patients end up being able to eat the great majority of foods that they ate preoperatively as long as they're healthy food. So those are some of the barriers that I find that patients have. And practitioners often can think of it, they, they don't think that their patient is overweight enough. They'll look at their patient and they'll, you know, because you, you know your patient, so you don't really think of them as a BMI. You look at them as Mrs. S. And so it doesn't correlate that Mrs. S has all these comorbidities. So I think that that would be really important to kind of just help think about that there actually is a treatment. And yes, it's not perfect, but it's the closest we have right now. And I know we're hitting a really small nail with this mega mallet, <laughs> but it's all we've got. And I also think that maybe as a primary care practitioner, I would be a little bit like reticent of like all of the pre-op workup. It just seems like it's so lengthy and you have to do so much to get your patients to that point. And sometimes you get them there and then they're, they're not even allowed to move forward with surgery. So those are some of the barriers that I see when I kind of look at it from afar. And actually from the patient perspective, they say that they're willing to accept about a 13% chance of dying from the operation if they were Holy willing cow. to um, get some type of health benefit. So that's fascinating to me oh too, is that the <laughs> mortality rate is so low and patients are so willing to accept the higher risk um, for a, a good health benefit. So it's, again, it's just, it's, it's complex. And I'm not really sure I completely understand it. It's fascinating because you will get to this, but from the practitioner standpoint, sort of a lot of the comorbidities that you may potentially accrue that come along with, with elevated BMI, 
are some of the reasons you would think that they might not be good surgical candidates. You know what I mean? So if someone has uncontrolled diabetes or they have obstructive sleep apnea or obesity hypoventilation or uh, fatty liver disease, you think, well, that, that person's probably not going to do well operatively when in fact, those are the actual indica- <laughs> indications to refer for the surgery. So it's, and then even, and I'm talking too much and I apologize, but again, you may even sort of amass specialists along the way too. So if you have OHS, you probably already have a pulmonologist. You may have some degree of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. So there might be a cardiologist riding along with your care. So a lot of these things might already be either in place or indications for surgery is, is sort of what I'm hearing here. Absolutely. And, you know, that's my job is to find out what they have and try to make that better before I tackle the operation. So we do a really comprehensive workup looking for things that perhaps haven't been found. Um, for example, vitamin deficiencies um, can occur in a lot of these obese patients and you may not even appreciate it. And so that's why we have such a lengthy lab workup. Um, We definitely ask about uh, upfront cardiac status. We really inquire about how active they are. And in many of these patients, they can't even climb up a flight of stairs because of all of the orthopedic issues that they have, the back pain, the, the DJD. And so you have to, if you can't assess how functional they are, you usually have to refer them to cardiologists for alternate types of stress tests. Um, you have to screen them for OSA. Um, and there's just, there's quite a lengthy list of the preoperative um, workup. My question will lead into the preoperative workup. What should we tell Miss Rue, uh, our patient, Miss Rue and why, when she's going to be referred, if we're referring her to you, what should she expect? Like who will she see? Is it, is it a multidisciplinary? And, and I'm, I'm sure this varies at each center, but what do most centers tend to have if I refer someone to a bariatric surgeon? Well, the ASMBS, which is our leading organization, which is the Association of uh, Bariatric and Metabolic Surgeons, has very strict criteria. Number one, that they're going to see a surgeon that has X amount of experience, Mm -hmm. um, that they meet with a nutritionist, and that they meet with a behavioral health psychologist, and that they will have their risk factors mitigated. And this is all part of the whole bariatric pre-surgical workup. It's really, I can say it's the closest to practicing internal medicine as a surgeon because I feel that I work with other members of the team um, so much that I'm really not a surgical silo. Um, yeah. I, uh, so it's, it's really great. And I think about other things that a surgeon may not necessarily think about. Should we dig into the workup? Oh, Stuart, go ahead. I just want to say before we get into the preoperative workup, you had mentioned Speaking of your the mega mallet, so you had mentioned the two most common types of surgeries, that being a sleeve gastrectomy and the Rue and Y, with the most common being performing in the United States right now, the sleeve gastrectomy. I, I just wanted to ask you, what is the reasoning for moving away from the Rue and Y? Is it because of the complications postoperatively or because of outcomes? Well, it, it's not really outcomes. It's just that the, if you think about it, there are very different types of operations. So First of all, let's let's even back up further. There's medical therapy, which is limited and it's modest in what it can achieve. Then there's other non-surgical approaches such as balloons, uh, intragastric balloons, greater curvature plications. The oldest procedure that we have is really the gastric bypass. The gastric bypass has been around for years. And it will go in and out of favor depending on what other operations we offer in that particular decade. I've been doing this enough to know that there's been at least 
two to three other operations that we offer that we no longer offer. And so the gastric bypass has been around the longest. And um, it used to be called a malabsorptive operation. And what you do is that you go into the abdomen. Initially, it was open, but now it's laparoscopic for most uh, cases. And you essentially go in and you divide the stomach into a small little piece. And then you leave the rest of the stomach behind. That is called the gastric remnant. And then the little stomach, which is in continuity with the mouth, is called the gastric pouch. You then divide the small intestine. You bring one of those limbs up to this pouch so that the food goes from the mouth to the pouch, it through the gastrojejunal anastomosis, down into the rule limb. And then it meets with the gastric remnant, the bile, the pancreatic fluid through the biliopancreatic limb. That's what that's called. And then they meet together at the jejunal, jejunal anastomosis. And then there's a common channel distally where everything, all the bile, all the pancreatic juice, and then the food mixes. And that's, that's called the common channel. So that is the crux of what a gastric bypass is. And again, we initially thought it was all malabsorptive and restrictive, and now we understand that it's much more than that. The second operation is called the laparoscopic sleeve gastrectomy. It was originally uh, started as the first part of the biliopancreatic diversion. And what they found is that when they did it in stages, that they ended up getting really great weight loss with just the sleeve gastrectomy. And so what a sleeve gastrectomy is fundamentally is you go in, you have the stomach and you staple the stomach and you create this long, narrow tube out of the stomach. And if you think about it, it looks like it's a restrictive operation exclusively, but it has so many other metabolic effects later on. For example, I was telling you about the diabetic remission almost immediately after the operation. And so it's mediated by things other than just restriction. There's also the laparoscopic adjustable gastric band, which is really not being used very often at the current state. And what it involves is it's a silicone band that comes across the stomach, and then it's connected to a port in the subcutaneous tissue. And as you inject that port, you fill the band so that there, there's more and more restriction. But because you're not cutting and stapling anything, there's none of those, well, there may be a slight, but there's very little metabolic effects that you see with the sleeve and with the, the gastric bypass. There were other operations such as the V-block, which is a vagal nerve stimulator or blocker, and uh, that is no longer being used. There is the duodenal switch, which um, is used more in Europe than it is in the United States. And part of the reasoning for that is that there's a lot of metabolic complications from that. And then there's this new thing called the SADI, which some um, surgeons are starting to use. And that's called a single anastomosis duodeno-ileal bypass. And it's just a variant of the sleeve with the duodeno-ileal bypass. So as you could see, there's a, a lot of things that come and go. And probably it's probably not going to be our role so much to, to choose that. It sounds like the surgeon will make a decision with the patient, which one they may benefit from. And for the most part, the sleeve gastrectomy and the traditional gastric bypass, which is 
has the same name as our patient, Ruin Y, gastric bypass. <laughs> Those are the two, the main ones, if I'm understanding. Absolutely. So to be honest with you, as a, as a surgeon, I think a lot of my patients come in knowing what they want. There's a lot of education uh, out there. They've talked to their friends, they've been online, or they may have preconceived notions that the bypass is too severe or too, too much for them. Mm-hmm. And then they, they, they steer more towards the sleeve gastrectomy because they think that it's a safer operation mm. uh, because there's less anastomoses. And so together we make the decision. And when I look at them, I, I try to see sometimes people with reflux are not really good candidates for sleeve gastrectomies because reflux can actually be made worse by the sleeve gastrectomy. So that requires further workup. And if someone has really severe reflux or, you know, reflux significant enough to cause alterations in their life, those are going to be patients that I steer more towards the bypass. You know, Paul, I, I've still been thinking about this. I'm a little bit worried about you. The, the last few times we checked in about this, you told me that you were just eating, I believe the word was hot garbage all the time. So... <laughs> Please tell me that that there's been something in your life that has helped you overcome this this horrible problem. I think I've mentioned before, it does concern me that a lot of the framing devices for our ads start with you being worried about me. But yeah, no, it's true. <laughs> I, I'm a vegetarian who largely doesn't eat vegetables. And that that is until getting the Green Chef meals. I, I've been getting the um, Green Chef vegetarian meal kit, which actually in- includes these really easy to prepare meals. Like, yes, we're sponsored, but I genuinely... I'm excited every time that I see the box show up and the meals are fantastic. I look forward to making them. And oddly, uh, the vegetarian meals seem to have a lot of vegetables in them, which is different than my usual um, way of cooking, which is mostly <laughs> uh, like fake hamburgers and stuff. So for instance, this week I got smoky romesco cauliflower. There was uh, a side of kale with red peppers, dried apricots and feta, and the side of like smoky potatoes on the side that had like, I think smoked paprika and then other some like Spanish ingredients on it. Just amazing and came together in like a half an hour and there was you know another meal we had was like the squash and mozzarella flatbreads again with a a great side salad so it feels like this complete meal that you put together easily um which i love and i it's it's again i look forward to it every time it shows up what what have you been doing how's your eating been yeah paul i think we mentioned on prior episodes that i actually enjoy preparing these meals as well uh, because i i don't often do the cooking at home but uh with this I can like confidently go in there, follow the recipe. I've the few times I've made them, I've made them with one of uh, my kids. And uh, recently, we got the balanced meals, which are you know there's some meat, some vegetables. And we should mention that if you order Green Chef, you can whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, vegetarian, or you just want to eat like healthier, they have meal plans for all of that. So the balanced meals we got recently, there was Korean beef and noodle stir fry. There was green pork couscous bowls and my kids loved it my oldest boy eats like four servings of each of these things which uh <laughs> may might uh, you know what paul he burns a ton of calories i it's think he's turn fine. Out fine yeah he's like a michael phelps diet like eight thousand calories a day or something <laughs> so yeah i mean green chef is fantastic and paul i understand that they're environmentally conscious as well yeah, so it's as the joke we make often, it's not just a catchy name. Green Chef is actually a sustainable meal kit. They offset 100% of direct carbon emissions, and everything in the box is recyclable. The whole thing's very thoughtfully put together, so you can feel great about what you're eating and, and how it got to your table without feeling guilty about extra packaging. So go to greenchef.com slash 90curb and use the code 90curb to get $90 off, including free shipping. 
Again, that's greenchef.com slash 90curb and use the code 90CURB to get $90 off, including free shipping. That's Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. This might be a good time to actually transition into the, the pre-op workup, because actually, I guess the question of reflux begs the question, does that mean that patients should get a gastroenterology evaluation prior to considering the metabolic surgeries? And then, I guess, picking back on that, what, what else? And I know there's a lot here to talk about, but sort of in broad strokes, what kind of pre-op expectations should we be counseling patients about? So this is actually a growing field. Um, there is actually medical bariatricians that help us sort patients out and decide what's important. But if you really just think about it, you want to know about this patient, how well they're functioning. So you want to check their labs. You want to check a CBC, electrolytes, iron studies, all types of vitamin levels, cholesterol, thyroid, uh, hemoglobin A1C. Those are all very standard things that you want to assess. You then want to assess them functionally. Do they have sleep apnea, which can affect them as they recover postoperatively, you want to assess their cardiac status, as we spoke about earlier. You want to look at whether they have reflux, and a GI evaluation may be warranted. For example, if they have severe reflux, you may want to start with an endoscopy um, or sometimes even just an upper GI to decide if there's something as simple as a hiatal hernia that's causing the reflux. You want to have potentially an endocrine evaluation if the hemoglobin A1C is out of control. So let's say, um, I think Ms. Ruan-Y's hemoglobin A1C was 8.1. And in that case, those are patients that I would try to really try to counsel them, have them meet with nutrition, and really work hard on trying to bring their hemoglobin A1C down a little bit. I don't think for a, a 0.1, but usually I try to keep my patients below 8. In some cases, I've found their hemoglobin A1Cs to be 10. And I usually view that as a marker of something that they're doing in their daily lives that things are not working. And, and you'd be surprised the things that I find. I mean, I find that they're drinking soda daily. It's fascinating. They're like, well, they didn't think about it because it's diet soda, right? But mm. it, it can definitely affect them. So you try to mitigate those things as well. Other things you really have to have a, you really have to, even as a surgeon, you have to ask them about their lifestyle. You'll review oftentimes the nutritional evaluation, which is nutrition is really paramount. Like if I really were to think about the whole pyramid, the nutritionists are like the base of this triangle. And then I, I need to review it to make sure that I'm not missing something. You uh, then need to have a very comprehensive behavioral uh, health evaluation, looking for things like past suicidal ideation. I mean, that if you had someone that had active suicidal ideation, you would not move them forward with bariatric surgery. Someone with an alcohol use disorder, someone with bulimia that you don't really, you didn't anticipate that could be overweight, but also has bulimia. People with binge eating disorders, those are all things that you want to know about. And your behavioral uh, health therapist will help work with you to find out what patients um, have and try to help guide those patients into more therapy until they're ready for the operation. I, I was surprised to read that there's, and correct me if I'm remembering this wrong, but there is increased risk for suicide. There's increased risk for alcohol use disorder. And I'm not sure if that's a result of the surgery or if it's just 
because patients are struggling with so much, this is a pretty, it's a topic that's, I think weight is a very sensitive issue. And then they're going through this major, major life change when they get a surgery. Do we know what, what's the cause of that? We know that there's a high incidence of depression amongst patients that are obese, mm-hmm. but there's also a concept known as transference of addiction, which can happen. And so a lot of our patients were able to get relief of, of anxiety if that was a coping mechanism from food. And now that food doesn't hold the same level of pleasure, um, they can often turn to other things that will provide them pleasure. Um, so that's why you can see sometimes a transference to alcohol or sex or drugs. And in terms of the suicidal ideation, we, we do see that as well. And it, it's so complex. I'm not really sure as a surgeon, if I fully understand it, but it's something that I talk to my patients about, not specifically, but I just ask them, I'm like, how are you doing? How are you adjusting to these changes? It's, it's really dramatic. And what I've noticed is that many patients immediately after the operation are almost have uh, like a buyer's regret. And then this is quickly overpowered by the sense of, increased energy and I can do everything uh, (laughs) after about three months of weight loss. And then they tend to do really well. We actually see that executive function improves after bariatric operations. People just feel better overall. And then things slowly start to creep up later. Sometimes it's when the weight starts coming back on a little bit at a time or, uh, you know, other life starts creeping back in into their now sunny uh, dispositions. Can I, in terms of the run into the actual procedure itself, I I understand there's, there's often a weight loss requirement. It sounds like some of that is insurance mandated. Can you talk to us about how hard and fast a line that is? And the same goes for the A1C. I think something that I struggle with is if that's an indication for surgery and you've had a hard time controlling it up to this point, like how do you get to some sort of pre-specified target for the surgery? How, how much of that is, um, how much of that will limit the patient's ability to proceed with surgery? Okay, so the first is pre-op weight loss. So yes. the the answer to that is that it's mandated for many insurance companies. But the bottom line is that we don't think that that really makes much of a difference in terms of post-operative outcome. In fact, there's some literature that suggests that we do it for purposes of decreasing our, our intra-op difficulty by decreasing the liver size, possibly by decreasing some complications and by increasing post-operative weight loss. So if we force them to go through all this mandatory pre-op weight loss, that they were gonna lose more weight at the end. And what we know now is that that's not really true. So to kind of force people that have been already forced for a long time and that are clearly not successful to proceed with these six months or even longer of mandatory pre-op weight loss, it's, it's kind of futile. So that it, it, that's not really the standard of care for most anymore. And then your second question was how to mitigate the hemoglobin A1C in someone that clearly needs an operation. So the way I view it is just, again, it's, it's a marker of people that are out of control in some way. And what I do is I load the boat. I load the endocrinologist. I load on their PCP. I put the pressure on the patient saying, listen, you, you have to we have to work together to try to get this better. It's almost like dangling a carrot in front of them (laughs) saying, please, but a a healthy carrot, right? So (laughs) (laughs) you're doing it with love as well. Definitely. 
Absolutely. And it, it's really just an incentive saying, please, I just want to make sure that you get through this operation safely with less complications, less wound infections. And the, the literature on pre-op hemoglobin A1C in bariatric patients is really not great, but it's just a marker that I use to, to try to mitigate the risk as much as I possibly can. And before we, we put uh, Ms. Y through her surgery, which I think is the next logical step, our, our periop guru, uh, Dr. Avio Glasser, actually would not forgive me if I did not ask about the liver reduction diet. You mentioned sort of this weight loss to sort of improve liver size. And then she, she mentioned a liver reduction diet, which is just a wild concept to me. <laughs> um, can you tell us <laughs> what that is and how it's supposed to work? Well, every program has their own means of doing that. Um, and again, it's not emphasized as much anymore, but um, there's like these OptiFast diets that patients get placed on that are supposed to reduce the liver volume size by about 15% and make the operation a little bit easier. But it's only for purposes of that. And um, with today's visualization, <laughs> I just feel that, you know, it, it also, they also state that it can decrease the operative time by like a few minutes. So there you go. Those it sounds like it, it sounds like maybe yes, it's you. not as patient centered as we would have hoped, <laughs> or or outcomes you know that it that it doesn't hold up as as in theory. I I understand in theory it sounds great. Yeah, smaller liver, easier for me to see everything else and do the operation, but maybe it it did right unless the specific patient goal is to shrink one's liver. Yeah, then, then we've really helped them out. Absolutely, but you know I I have to say that several like different organizations feel very strongly about pre-op weight loss and. Fundamentally, we know the, what the literature says, but to be honest with you, there's this whole concept that if patients can't lose weight preoperatively, a lot of people feel that they're not really going to be able to stay up with their postoperative diet. So they view it as a, a marker of being able to comply with this postoperative diet. And I think that's why they cling to that a little more readily. Uh, yeah. Right. And I, I think I, I always was told that as well. But we we take a patient like her. She's trying. It's it. She's doing everything. It's not working. And I think there's a lot of people like that who are probably misserved by these rules that are, I, I think, probably a little bit outdated and hopefully maybe maybe changing in the future. Because I I remember I've had patients like that that really wanted to get the surgery. They had a surgeon, but they had to lose like thirty pounds or something. And it was someone who was just totally plateaued and just could not just just couldn't do it. So, uh, Paul, you want to read the next part of the case? Yeah. So let's, let's, Ms. Y, we refer Ms. Y to a bariatric surgery program. She decides to proceed with uh, Ruin Y. She undergoes the periop workup, which goes swimmingly. She loses the 10 pounds prior to the scheduled surgery. She shrinks her liver nicely. We're, we're very thrilled. She's admitted. And then being the good primary care doctors we are, we visit her in the hospital after the procedure, which went off without a hitch. She feels okay, other than the usual sort of post-operative aches and pains. And then she starts asking us, her primary care doctors, about what she can eat and will there be any changes to her medication regimens. And since they don't know, let's, we'll make this me again. I just fake a text and then just leave the room before I have to answer. <laughs> and now I will, I will ask you the same questions that Ms. Y had for us. And let's, let's start, if you could just talk us post-operatively how someone's diet progresses and how we should expect uh, what patients will be told and then how we can help counsel them. And then we can sort of move to medications and stuff from there. So the whole diet concept is very surgeon or program specific. And what we refer to are things such as stages. And again, it can vary. So my stage one can be someone's stage two. But the bottom line is that you progress them from 
clear liquids to then protein drinks, which are usually considered stage two to three. And then you keep them on these uh, protein drinks and, and liquids for about three weeks. And then if they do well, you can advance them to a stage four, which is mostly soft foods. And then after approximately three months, as tolerated, you can advance their diet further to more regular foods as long as it's healthy and balanced and it doesn't contain a lot of sugar if it's if they've had a bypass. So you really have to know what type of operation they have had and then you advance them that way. And it's all um, the nutritionists are key in terms of advancing the diet. There's also a lot of stuff online. So patients are very savvy and they, they look stuff up, they communicate with one another. But the main goals is that these patients, at least early on, can get very dehydrated. So you really have to encourage them to drink um, and to keep up with their protein intake through protein shakes early on, and then gradually you advance them. Miss Rue here, she's only 31, and her best friend's getting married. She wants a glass of wine. It's Let's say we're six months out. Can she have a glass of wine? She had the ruin why. So the answer to that is if you're going to have, I would really strongly encourage you not to have that first glass of wine at that wedding because you may get <laughs> dumping and you will also, um, one glass may turn uh, your body into like two or three glasses, it may seem. So you may get uh, drunk more readily. So I would really encourage her that if she's going to do it, don't do it at the wedding and have a sip. Okay. <laughs> And I think but we re- not publicly. <laughs> but we really encourage them not to drink. Okay. Yeah, so they really have to take it take it easy and try try not to drink. Absolutely. And no carbonated beverages and again very lo- low sugar, uh low carb things. Oh, interesting. The car cuz cuz you know the seltzers are now not not hard seltzers even. I just mean like the regular old, you know, seltzers, club sodas. I know a lot of people drink them now because they don't have sugar. They're not diet. They don't have like whatever is in diet beverages. So is it are is it the distension from the gases in them that just like are you worried about the staple lines or is it just make them feel bad? Why can't they well, drink carbonated beverages? Initially, um, to be honest, this is a, a fabulous question, and I don't know if anybody's really looked at it. I think okay. it's one of those things that we just tell patients, and I but I don't really know where the physiologic mechanism comes from. Okay. Um, so so I'm, we'll stay I'm away sorry. from it. We'll tell them to stay. I just didn't know that. That uh, took me by <laughs> surprise that I was. <laughs> okay, Paul, did she also ask us something else? Was it uh, the uh, Miss Rue? Did she ask, what else did she ask us about? So Ms. White also asked us about her medication. So I noticed that she's on an extended release metformin. She's also on the levothyroxine. So I guess we can, we can even make it broader than her. What sort of medication counseling should we be doing for this patient immediately postoperatively? Well, hopefully some of this will have occurred preoperatively. So we look at the patients that are on extended release medications and, and pills that are super, that are solid. And we try to find other alternatives uh, preoperatively so that it doesn't come to us as a surprise in the postoperative period. We try to switch them to immediate release medications, even before surgery sometimes, um, so that the absorption is much more regular. So that's the main premise. Things, for example, like levothyroxine, 
you may not need as much levothyroxine after the operation. So that'll have to be very closely monitored. Blood pressure pills in general have to be very closely monitored. So I will often have my patients meet with their primary care physician within one to two weeks to help adjust the medications. If they're on a lot of antihypertensives, their blood sugar medications, as I mentioned earlier, we oftentimes don't have to have them go home on anything, but we have them check their blood sugars just to make sure that they don't have anything that's incredibly erratic uh, that needs to be treated. Stuart, I, I, I was expecting you yeah. to burst in here uh, talking about uh, you something. You took a breath and I was like, all right, here we go. <laughs> Am I, I waiting I for the iron question? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. No, I was just going to say like, uh, so postoperatively, what uh, vitamins, minerals would you recommend starting? Um, what formulation? So we often will recommend a multivitamin with iron. Um, we will recommend calcium and a B12 supplement. And those are the very standard things that we recommend. Can you be a little bit specific about the dosing of or the formulation of iron or calcium or the vitamin, vitamin D or B12, any of that stuff? Do you have any preference of, of the dose or the formulation? Well, I'll, I'll often work with pharmacy. Um, to So we already have like a, a standard template for what we use. Okay. But they can often use a children's multivitamin that they take twice a day that contains iron. For example, in women that are of childbearing age, you may want them to have like 40 to 60 milligrams of elemental iron um, in their supplement. Um, if, for example, in B12, the oral um, is somewhere between 350 to 500 micrograms per day. Um, alternatively, um, you can also do uh, the injections, which are 1,000 micrograms IM or sub-Q once a month. And then some patients prefer the nasal spray. Hmm. Oh, I have, yeah, not, I have the, not used that. Stuart, are you familiar? No, I'm not familiar with that, but 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 you're, you're speaking to my heart about the, the children's multivitamin. <laughs> I knew it. I hear the Flintstones. Yeah, I know. I was <laughs> right. <ready for> it. <laughs> yeah, it, it was uh, the Flintstones, but but it, usually I I have them do the two tabs once a day, and then the evening it's when they take the ADEC with the divalent cations like the calcium because you don't want to do that with the with the iron because it prevents the absorption of it. But um, the ones that I typically use that because we don't have anything on formulary is the uh, like the. ADEC berry melts is what I typically use, but again, we don't have it on formulary, so I have to like go to Amazon and show them and say, hey, it's <laughs> 10 bucks for 30 of them or something like that. But uh, that's a, a huge issue for us and the system that I work in that I won't speak about. Is there a major, <laughs> since we're, we're talking about mainly the two, if, if someone has the sleeve gastrectomy versus the gastric bypass, is there a major difference in vitamins or are most patients getting the same vitamin, the vitamin regimen? Well- if you stop, even just like from an iron absorption standpoint, let's say it's, it happens in the duodenum. Um, and so that is obviously altered in a gastric bypass. Yeah. Um, and also the gastric pH is altered. So you have to think of creative ways. So you will often use like a Vitron C or some, you know, something that has like a vitamin C that helps the absorption of iron. The nutritional abnormalities in sleeve versus bypass are slightly different. Mostly with the sleeve, you end up getting anemias. Not always, but with the gastric bypass, eventually later on, you can get a lot of other vitamin abnormalities and micronutrient abnormalities as well. 
And so that's why it's really important that if you're a primary care physician and the surgeon has checked out, they're no longer in this patient's life, that you really at least once a year, you step back, you think about what they've had, and then order different uh, labs that will address all the micronutrient and vitamin deficiencies that can potentially occur in these patients. Right, because like like the weird copper and zinc. Yeah, I was going to say order. copper, zinc, <laughs> yeah. and I think selenium was one of the other ones yeah. that I saw. Absolutely, vitamin C, the ADEC vitamins, you know, A, D, E, K, folate, B six, B twelve, B two, niacin, B one. So you can really get all of these different deficiencies, and so you really have to be on the lookout. It's actually fun because it. it you have to go back to all of those vitamin deficiencies from medical school and try to remember what they are. It's it's challenging. Yeah, I think I believe the guidelines. The what are the guidelines from? I think twenty seventeen or twenty eighteen. They were uh, ACE and a bunch. Some of the obesity societies and I think surgical societies have a guideline that has tables that list out these things. So maybe we'll make a figure for the audience that that lists some of these out because I think it's hard to digest. Uh, pun intended, in the audio medium here. <laughs> Absolutely. I actually think that would be really important. And there's actually one of the the best papers that I found was this one from, it's the Clinical Practice Guidelines for Support of Patients Undergoing Bariatric Procedures from 2019. And it's the American Society of Clinical Endocrinologists, the Obesity Society, oh, yeah, and that's the, the, that's the one. ASMBS. And it's from 2019. And it's 2019. excellent. It actually contains just about everything and then levels of evidence that um, for the different operations and it, it's fantastic. I think that's the one yeah. I was, I was referring, I had the wrong year and it has yeah. like 80 some recommendations. It's uh, Paul, we talked about obesity, hypoventilation, five recommendations. This one has 84 <laughs> recommendations. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> it's the basis for most of the script is an aside. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great gigantic guideline. Yeah. The, the one thing I wanted to ask about was on average, how long do these patients see their bariatric surgeon? Great question. That's a wonderful question. Uh, according to the ASMBS, which is our main um, society, we should be following patients for approximately five years. I mean, that can definitely vary as long as there's a really great communication pathway between the primary care physician, the nutritionist, and the surgeon. One other thing I wanted to say about medication too is that uh, if you have a patient that has had a gastric bypass, it is really important to make sure that they're not, they don't get any non-steroidals as that can increase the marginal ulceration risk. Um, and, and that's hard because they may still have underlying DJD and we may be prompted to give them the standard NSAID, but that's really not good for them in the long term. And what about PPI usage in individuals with RU and Y? So um, again, another very interesting thing, but what we do is that we recommend that they open up the PPI caplet uh, because it increases absorption. Oh, and don't forget OCPs and the young women. Um, so Ms. Ruanwai, um, you really want to try to have them not get pregnant for the first year or two afterwards. So we really recommend that they stay on OCPs. Okay. Yeah. Can you just speak to that? This idea of this post-operative, you know, hyperfertility. It's it's something that I, I think a couple of our correspondents actually brought up, which I, I thought was sort of an interesting concept. So you bring up the OCPs. So can you can you talk about what that is and what that represents, please? So a lot of our obese patients have 
endocrine abnormalities and so they're unable to be fertile. And once the weight comes off, this whole access um, regulates itself. And then all of a sudden, they're surprisingly very fertile. And what you don't want to have happen is that um, the patient then becomes pregnant when they're in a rapid phase of weight loss um, because they can have lower birth weight infants, um, they can deliver early, and not to mention vitamin abnormalities like folate that are important for neural tube formation. So we really uh, encourage and guide our female patients to avoid getting pregnant early on in the weight loss voyage. All right. So our patient post-operative doing reasonably well. She's losing weight appropriately. We're As we're moving forward as our primary care doctors, we're being very thoughtful about just monitoring her micronutrient levels, making sure we're not missing anything. Are there any other sort of primary care considerations? I feel like bone health is brought up in some of the papers too, that we should just be, be especially mindful of in our patients who have undergone bariatric surgery. As a primary care physician, the things that you want to be on the lookout um, in terms of monitoring your patients are standard things like cholelithiasis, they're at a higher risk of developing gallstones, symptomatic gallstones, which is why we put them on medication um, such as ursodiol early in the postoperative phase to help prevent gallstone formation, but they could still develop symptomatic cholelithiasis. So be on the lookout for that. In patients that have had a gastric bypass, if they tell you that they've had the sudden onset of sharp, severe abdominal pain, you have to that, that has to elevate things a bit to more than just go see your bariatric surgeon, but go to the ER immediately and get that worked up because that um, can sometimes signify that they have an internal hernia or their gastric remnant is very dilated. And, and these can all lead to very catastrophic complications. They can also have something uh, such as simple as a marginal ulcer. And then in the sleeve patients, you have to think long-term that they can develop a really severe reflux. So that's something that cannot be underestimated after a gastric sleeve is that uh, patients can develop worsening reflux. And there's about a 17% chance that they can develop the novo Barrett's esophagus afterwards. So it's in, at least in my patients, I ask them to get an endoscopy after about three years after their sleeve, even if they don't have any symptoms of reflux, because there can be pathologic changes that may be silent afterwards. And I think along the terms of complications that I'm aware of, but don't know much about, and so one of the many reasons why we're glad that you're here is this idea of dumping. I think you alluded to it earlier. Can you just talk us through, I think there's like an early and a late, but I think that's, I, we've now reached the extent of my knowledge. So can you, can you explain to me exactly how, how dumping syndrome works and what it is for the patients? So there's, at least there's two types. And I, every time I just stop, there's, there's, I hear that there may be even be a third type, but the bottom line is that it happens in about 10% of patients. And I believe Miss Rue had it. She didn't feel very well. It's usually after patients have something that's very sugary, in uh, substance. So if they'll drink a milkshake or a soda or fruit juice or something like that, or a piece of candy, it can precipitate dumping. Early dumping is usually within 30 to 60 minutes, and it can be associated with crampy pain, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, sweating, flushing, and a rapid heartbeat. And then the late effects of late dumping occur sometimes between one and three hours after, the, after they've had that food they feel fatigued, they flush, they can get dizzy, they can also get a rapid heart rate, 
And we think that the etiology of that are blood sugar changes. So they recommend eating more complex carbs as opposed to like these very um, immediate release carbs and uh, fiber, drinking lots of water so that you stay hydrated uh, and small meals. For etiologies of the early dumping, um, they think that it could be small bowel stretch, water accumulating in the small bowel, and then um, gut hormones. So uh, again, very fascinating. And I think Miss Rue uh, definitely is something that we talk about and that's very real and very debilitating for patients. And how far along in the postoperative course do you typically see those? Like where, where are the patients postoperatively when they manifest? We see them afterwards, typically. Like usually I see them after, a, a while they're still learning how to eat, um, while they're making mistakes, but it's not right away um, that we see them. I'll often find these effects like in patients that have had their Ruan Wise like two or three years. I don't see dumping that frequently with the sleeves. It's usually with the gastric bypasses for the mechanisms that we've kind of discussed already. Yeah, the most interesting one that I had was a NIPS patient. That's a non-insulinoma pancreatogenic hypoglycemia syndrome. Um, I have three of them in my, in my panel. One was diagnosed around <laughs> because of course. Don't you ask know. why. Uh-huh. I uh, one was diagnosed around twenty years after his Bill Roth one procedure because he was masking the symptoms by uh, drinking just tons of alcohol. And then once we got him to stop drinking alcohol, that's when his nips kind of reared its ugly head because we re- replaced the alcohol with well with with sugar, right? Well, not with sugar, but with the normal normal meals. And he started coming in with uh, the, the these uh, severe episodes of hypoglycemia, ended up having to put it placement like acrobos, I think. Mm-hmm. It was, it was kind of yeah. crazy. Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting, uh, it can be confused with nasidioblastosis. Yes. Um, and some patients, even I've, I've met patients that have undergone partial pancreatectomies for treatment of this disease, mm-hmm. only to find out that it ultimately doesn't work. So... Um, there are endocrinologists that really work with patients to alter their diet. Um, they may tell them to eat like nuts really late, at, you know, late so that it's um, their digestion is is altered. Um, so a lot of it, uh, the treatment is really dietary. Uh, so avoid dehydration and really change your diet. Right. Yep, it was uh, kind of funny. Matt uh, diagnosed him for something Colburn. <laughs> that one. <laughs> so. Paul, are we ready for take-home points? Let me let me ask my my final. I think the one thing I, I I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about was you told us about how much weight patients can expect to lose after these metabolic surgeries. I guess how do you address if a patient doesn't lose the expected amount or loses and then begins to regain that weight? What what interventions are available or sort of how can we how can we best help those patients? Because I feel like that's a circumstance I see um, fairly common. So the whole concept of weight regain is um, it's, it's a moving target, partially because we as bariatric surgeons have a hard time deciding on what metric is considered successful. So a lot of the, the literature is, is pretty much all over the place. They'll say, well, if it's over 25%, if, if you gain X amount over your nadir weight loss, that's considered weight recidivism or weight regain. So I think if you see your patients, and you have to acknowledge that after about two to three years, there is a slight increase in weight, but 
if you're starting to have a patient that's gaining five to 10 BMI points after their operation, those are patients that you really want to start getting on their, you know, you want to get to them and you want to engage the nutritionist. You want to engage the behavioral health uh, specialist to see if they're going back to old behaviors. And we know that people that lose like impulse control after bariatric operations are more likely to regain their weight. There's actually some studies that are looking at the use of liraglutide uh, in patients that have weight regain. And some surgeons are pushing them toward revisions for weight regain as well, which is something that I've seen in the literature. All right. I think that was all I had. You guys are speechless. You have <laughs> I'm like, keep it on, bring it on. <laughs> You're doing great. I think you've just, we give up. Uh, you, you know everything. <laughs> I don't, I, I don't at all. <laughs> but it, you guys have really had experience with these patients, which is to me the most fascinating thing because it's the interface of primary care with surgery. And uh, it's, it's really cool. Yeah, this is this has been an interesting thing to to watch evolve over the past many years of practice, and then now trying to to learn about it because I recently, I as I was telling you in pre recording, I've just had a couple patients that are having some more, I would say, more late nutritional complications of their metabolic surgery, and I'm trying to figure out how I can best help them, and uh, I have some good ideas based on our conversation. But can you give the audience like two or three take-home points if they don't remember anything else from this that you would really like them to remember? I think, number one, think about bariatric surgery earlier. Uh, We know that it really decreases a lot of the comorbidities uh, associated with obesity. And the risk is not as high as you would think. The risk of mortality is well under 1%. And in the end, for these patients, it increases their health and they feel better, their quality of life is better, they live longer. So we should be thinking about this earlier before their diabetes has progressed to end organ dysfunction. Um, So let's think about it a little bit earlier and really help guide the patients into understanding that it's not this black box where you're going to have all these major life changes, because eventually you'll probably be able to go back to eating many of the healthy foods you ate beforehand. Other things I would really encourage um, primary care physicians to use the clinical practice guidelines for support. They're there. And um, they help even people like me that do this on a day-to-day basis to kind of remind myself of the things I need to check, all the vitamin levels, um, knowing exactly how much to add, how to help the nutritionist when, because oftentimes it's many, the nutritionists that are dealing with this. So just to help guide them. And then lastly, I would say that if you're a primary care physician, don't just view bariatric surgery as one thing. There's actually different operations with different possible um, issues that arise later on. For example, the, the bypass can have long lasting issues with vitamin uh, and mineral abnormalities. And so you have to be more on the lookout for those um, when you're seeing them. And then those patients with the sleeve can, are more predisposed to anemias. 
And so you really have to, to inquire a little more than just say, oh, you, you know, Miss S had uh, bariatric surgery. You have to ask a little more on the details. Maybe she's 80 years old and she had a junal ileal bypass. So you really want to try to inquire uh, a little further. And lastly, work with your bariatric surgeons. We love to work with you. Um, and I think that that is really fertile ground for patients doing well. All right. Thank you so much. Perfect. We will fade this into the outro. <laughs> this has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. All right. Fairly standard stuff. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get your weekly show notes in your inbox. That's right, because we are committed to providing you with high-valued practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producers for this episode. Actually, there's just one, Paul Williams. And to our social media team, Beth Garbs, Garbatelli on Twitter, Maddie Maddog Morgan on Instagram, MJ Allen and Jeff Carter on the transcription team, Tima Karganov on the website, and Chris, the Chu Manchu on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Stuart Kent Brigham. And a reminder that this and most of our episodes are available for free CME credit at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org through our partnership with VCU Health Continuing Education. All you have to do is create your own account. And with that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And we would be absolutely remiss if we did not thank the amazing Stuart Brigham for composing the theme music you are doubtless hearing behind us. We should also thank the great Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. Vivian, that was amazing. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. That was really fun. I'm just, you know, I love you guys just know so much. I'm honestly like so um, your patients are lucky to have you. I tell them that all the time. <laughs> 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 Claire, keep that in for Paul. <laughs> <laughs>